Hello and welcome to the Poet Prophetic Podcast. Here is the next instalment of the Gourmet Gospel, comprising Section 8. Enjoy! Section 8. The Gourmet Gospel. Quotes. It gives great glory to God for a person to live in this world using and appreciating the good things of life without care, without anxiety. Thomas Merton. Victuals and drink is a cheerful thing. Thomas Hardy, far from the madding crowd. The righteous eat to their heart's content. Proverbs 13.25 Night after night, I would steep in a toxic stew of condemnation and guilt as I lay in bed. Yet again, I had stuffed myself with food just before turning in, and yet again, I could not turn onto my side because of the discomfort in my stomach. Yet again... I resolved to do better in future. By a type of behavior modification approach, I would make rules for what I ate, when I ate, how much I ate. I would fast. I would ritually ask for God's blessing on every plate, as instructed by a church member who claimed she had heard this instruction from God. Day in, day out, I would repeat the same miserable cycle, digging myself into deeper and deeper levels of despair. I felt like Paul's slave to sin, unable to carry out the good I desired to do. Meanwhile, some phantom god would critically scrutinize every morsel, so that I wondered with each new mouthful whether this was the one that disobeyed God because now I had eaten too much. Each unfinished portion was somehow a righteous sacrifice, and if I accidentally dropped some food on the floor, I would take it as a sign from God that I was not supposed to eat it. Yes, by such divinities of hell, I was head and shoulders deep in a quagmire of guilt and misery. Of course, as you may infer from the preceding chapters in this book, I subsequently realized that being a slave to righteousness, or rather, more helpfully, being someone naturally inclined to act in accordance with God's will, is never about behavior modification, but about being who you are and embracing your natural inclinations, tastes, and desires. For these are godly. These are your best guide, as opposed to some merciless regimen or diet. And being a slave to righteousness, that is to say, one naturally inclined to do that which is healthy, it is impossible to be an overeater, an alcoholic, or any kind of addict. That fictitious identity is dead, and labels are important. For example, in 12-step groups, a participant will typically say, Hi, I'm so-and-so, and I'm a fill-in-the-blank addict. Not so! How wonderfully freeing if each participant said instead, I am one aligned with the will of God, or I am a slave to righteousness, then recovery becomes, quite simply, returning to who you are. Moreover, wherever you are coming from, whatever motivations are at work, 
it is still impossible to overdo anything because any dividing line between right and wrong, too much or too little, is obliterated. With the tricks of law erased, there can be no dividing line regulating any behavior. And where there is no law, there is no sin. To summarize, it is impossible for you to be a sinner in who you are, and it is impossible for you to sin in what you do. In other words, you cannot be an addict. In my own journey, I came to understand that no mouthful can ever take me across some boundary into sinful territory or overeating, for no such boundary exists. I also realize that the portion on my plate may have very little to do with my appetite and what my body needs, which may be a lot more or a lot less. A plate is just a plate. It's not my conscience. Nor is God scrutinizing every mouthful as I had imagined. As for the instruction to ask for God's blessing on my food, that was forced prophecy coming from the church member who was pursuing an agenda of manipulation. At one time, I used to view so-called overeating as my Achilles heel, my specific area of failing, as if Jesus' victory were incomplete. Wrong. There is now no such thing as an Achilles heel. The old self, or the addict if you prefer, was put to death with the same kind of ruthless, uncompromising and conclusive manner in which Moses destroyed the idolatrous golden calf worshipped by the Israelites while he was meeting God on Mount Sinai. I took that sinful thing of yours, the calf you had made, and burned it in the fire. Then I crushed it and ground it to powder as fine as dust and threw the dust into a stream that flowed down the mountain. When I began to eat as I wanted, and not as I believed I should, freedom came, and with it, release from self-destructive patterns. We may gratify desire for delicious food without giving heed to the legalistic messages of self-denial that condemn men and women and that inflame unhealthy desire. And we can trust in our natural inclination to select the types and quantities of food that are uniquely best for us. Now, you may say, I have just eaten an enormous plate of food. I feel horrible. How can you say I'm not an overeater? I would reply that the overeater is dead and that it is impossible for you to eat enough to become an overeater no matter how hard you tried because there's no threshold you could cross to earn that status. I would also say that your intrinsic being loves to be comfortable so in eating to discomfort you merely did something contrary to your natural self, out of character, but not a crime. Yet I have learned that the human race is more plagued by condemnation about eating than any other activity. Food and nutrition are such a spawning ground for falsehood that I have dedicated this entire section to the issue, as well as the title of this book. It's not just the idea of maintaining a perfect body image that so haunts us and for which the image makers are upbraided. It's also the idea that food can be decadent or a guilty pleasure or sinful. Those labels again. 
How skillful are these manipulations that foster a perception of failure and defeat? How tormenting the calls to abstinence? Moreover, how fraudulent is our colossal diet industry, along with its nutrition gurus, as they sit on the shoulders of humanity, counting mouthfuls, totting up calories, condemning empty ones, and pronouncing judgment on the moral sufficiency of food choices. In short, criminalizing the enjoyment of food. And let us, while we're at it, sweep all those fraudulent, low-fat food products from the shelf. Their existence rests on an embedded lie, an absurd and unscientific idea that reducing fat in the diet reduces fat in the body. It is wholly unfortunate that we have the same word to describe both a component of food and a physical state. One has nothing to do with the other. Low-fat food products do not make low-fat people, nor do high-fat foods make high-fat people. It's preposterous. Furthermore, fat in food is important in giving food flavor, conveying satisfaction, and vital in nourishing cells, organs, and the body's nervous system. Strip out the fat, you strip out the satisfaction, and you foster the desire to eat more. Fat also has fewer calories per weight than carbohydrates. If, in their quixotic mission to strip fat content, food manufacturers increase the carbohydrate percentage, they render the food more body fat producing and, adding insult to injury, less nutritious, less tasty, less satisfying. But for heaven's sake, this is not to advocate an alternative law based on low-carbohydrate intake to reduce calories. The entire point of consuming food is to take in calories, to take in the energy we need to keep our bodies alive and functioning. A low-calorie food product is a low-food food product. It's bonkers. So let me reiterate that fat content in food has nothing to do with body fat, that the fake connection between the two is largely a semantic problem, wherein fat is a homonym that describes two completely different things. And then there's the sheer confusion of what we are told. Good cholesterol, bad cholesterol, this time of day, that time of day, meat, no meat, X servings of fruit, Y servings of vegetables, vitamins, minerals, supplements, amino acids, it never ends. New theories are spawned each week about what's good for you, what's bad for you. Old theories are dressed up as new ones. While scientific studies, often sponsored by food or pharmaceutical companies to produce a predetermined conclusion, clamor to add their compost to the heap of dietary burdens benighting mankind. Down with diets. Quotes. Gorging tends to happen more often when I am on a diet. Jonathan Ross, why do I say these things? I'm very anti the dieting industry because they exploit people's insecurities and also they don't deliver what they promise. It's an industry based on predicting failure. Victoria Wood on Desert Island Discs God will speak to his people to whom he said, This is the resting place, let the weary rest, and this is the place of repose. 
But they would not listen, so then the word of the Lord to them will become, Do and do, do and do, rule on rule, rule on rule, a little here, a little there, so that they will go and fall backwards, be injured and snared and captured. Isaiah 28, 11-13 I remember fondly a Hagar the Horrible cartoon strip I once saw in a British newspaper. A waitress asks Hagar if he would like a piece of pie. Yes, he answers, pauses for a moment and then says, On second thoughts, bring me the whole pie. As he relishes the enormous dessert before him, he says to himself, If you're going to feel guilty, at least have something to feel guilty about. The Apostle Paul's observation that law makes sin increase was never truer than with dieting, and diets are law. Some people have caught on that diets don't work, but few understand the equation behind it, that the application of rules to regulate eating creates and inflames desire not only to break those rules, but, as in Hagar's case, to go the whole hog. What chains the human race wraps itself in with its diet sheets and calorie counters that would subvert the easy yoke Christ intends for us? Note, too, that after Paul has hailed Christ's literally earth-shattering achievement of cancelling the law, or written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, the very first thing he goes after is diets. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. Simply put, to hell with diets. He continues... Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Or, to quote Isaiah, diets are... Do and do, do and do, rule on rule, rule on rule, a little here, a little there. And even worse than normal legalism, which is the search for righteousness by obeying some scripturally derived law, diets even go outside the Bible to follow the world's rules, bringing with them the world's sorrow and death. False Food Oracles Now suppose some false angel, disguised as an oracle of righteousness, told you to have no more than, say, 50 bars of, insert your favourite chocolate brand here, per day. Were you to give credence to this quota, you would want to exceed it, whatever protests your body made to the contrary, so that that law would be broken. Why do people want to break the law? because they know in their hearts they were not made for it. See also, law is our enemy, above. This is the pact the false angel wants to seal with you, that you will break the law and so stand accused before him. Or, if in a particularly malevolent frame of mind, he might say, Oh, did you think I said 50 bars of chocolate? 
No, I said fifteen. You get the idea. We who have felt the sting of accusation for simply enjoying the taste buds God gave us are in good company. Christ himself dealt with it constantly, including the charge that he was a glutton or that he took his meals in the wrong company. And John Bunyan reported how that false angel, destroyer or Satan, would not let me eat my food at quiet. But when I was set at my table at my meat, I must go hence to pray. I must leave my food now and just now. So counterfeit holy would this devil be. When Bunyan argued he would like to finish his meal before praying, Satan would speak again. No, said he, you must do it now or you will displease God and despise Christ. On top of all that, Bunyan was further tormented with the idea that, like Esau, he had sold his birthright for a single meal. This destroyer would set us adrift on a storm-tossed sea of current, cross-current and counter-current of opinion and formula to leave us lost, bewildered and totally confused. Therefore, so help me God, if I can bring freedom to people afflicted by guilt, dread or obsession with regard to food, then the time and effort that went into this book will be well spent. Just as we are free from the law that screams, Too much! We are just as free from the law that screams, Too little! Such as the requirement to finish everything on the plate or everything in the fridge. Eating until full is also a strategy fraught with legalism, for it sets up a murky boundary that must not be crossed, a false division between right and wrong, and the place where full is reached is in itself a moving feast, pun intended. Rather, we are free to eat, as the Bible says, to our heart's content. There is no law, no calibration, about what is enough, what is too much or too little, and because there is no law, there can be no sin, and where there is no sin, overeating is impossible and unachievable. There is no potential for failure of any kind. Weight and size targets are yet another form of legalism. Imagine, for instance, a woman says to herself, I must be a size X, so she buys a size X dress, when really she would be more comfortable in a size Y but instructs her future self to conform to X. What has she done? She has made a law for herself. Thou shalt be a size X. And what is the result? The law makes sin increase. So she will not only fail to obey the law, she will disobey it massively and end up being a size Z. Same goes for a man who says, I must have an X-inch waist. When he is comfortable in Y-inch trousers, he too has set himself up to be a Z. Food, glorious food. Quotes. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. 
Isaiah 25, 6. He is wooing you from the jaws of distress to a spacious place free from restriction, to the comfort of your table laden with choice food. Job 36, 16. Beyond dismissing diets as legalism, let us draw on the Bible's repeated emphasis on liberation with regard to eating. It begins in Genesis, where God gave us all manner of vegetation for food, and it continues throughout the Old Testament, wherein each guest partakes in his own way and is served according to his own wishes and according to his own appetite. God sets a table for us in the presence of our enemies, and the king who legislates against eating is exposed as a fool. The latter example comes when the Israelites are in battle with the Philistines. Now the Israelites were in distress that day, because Saul had bound the people under an oath, saying, Curse be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. The entire army entered the woods, and there was honey on the ground. When they went into the woods, they saw the honey oozing out, yet no one put his hand to his mouth because they feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard that his father had bound the people with the oath, so he reached out the end of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it into the honeycomb. He raised his hand to his mouth and his eyes brightened. Then one of the soldiers told him, Your father bound the army under a strict oath, saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food today. That is why the men are faint. Jonathan said, My father has made trouble for the country. See how my eyes brightened when I tasted a little of this honey? How much better it would have been if the men had eaten today some of the plunder they took from their enemies. Would not the slaughter of the Philistines have been even greater? Then, in the New Testament, Christ becomes the champion of merciful munching. When, for example, his disciples are picking ears of corn as they go through a field, and the Pharisees declare this unlawful because it is the Sabbath, Jesus rebukes these diet pleas for condemning the innocent. Elsewhere, he declares all food clean, and later tells Peter, with regard to his choice of meats, not to call anything impure that God has made clean. Next, Paul tells us food is irrelevant to the kingdom of God, not to judge another's choice of food, nor to allow anyone to judge our choice. He too describes food as clean and says nothing is to be rejected. Paul also told the Corinthians they could eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. But this freedom applies just as much to the confectioner, the baker, the delicatessen, the dumpling house or pasta parlour as it does to the butcher's shop. In short, what we eat, when we eat, how much we eat, is entirely a matter of guiltless individual preference. Sweets to the sweet. If you want to lose weight, eat sweets. Now I will tell you why. Among my friends, I have quite a reputation for having a sweet tooth. I am especially passionate about chocolate, 
which must be as close to the food of the gods as we mortals can get. So let me take a moment to extol the godly virtues of eating sweets, cakes, puddings, desserts, etc. The world, of course, with its joy-killing proclivities and shame-ridden assumptions that anything that tastes good must be bad for you, loves to libel sweets with such labels as decadent, guilty, fattening, etc. But the opposite is true. Consider these verses from the book of Proverbs. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. A longing fulfilled is sweet to the soul. A craving for sugar that is satisfied is a longing fulfilled, and a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. But a craving denied is hope deferred, making the heart sick. Those under legalistic prohibitions about eating sweets suffer first from eating without satisfaction and second from inflamed desire to break the prohibitions so that the tongue deprived keeps eating in the hope of a delicious end that never comes. Those who finish a meal with a sweet, on the other hand, are content and satisfied. Therefore, turning conventional wisdom on its head, we realize it is not self-indulgence that is fattening, but self-denial. I think back to my days working on Wall Street and the poor misguided co-workers stuffing themselves with enormous dreary salads at lunchtime. They had bought into the sad salad syndrome that chomping lots of boring shrubbery would help them to lose weight. But the reverse is true. It makes the body crave what is denied while filling it with fodder it doesn't want. But if you savour what you eat, such as yummy desserts, you do not need to eat so much. And to hell with the idea that if something tastes good it cannot be good for us. Our taste buds were given us by God to show preference for those foods our bodies most need. I am not alone in thinking it is high time we stopped cheating our palates. I first came across journalist Tim Richardson, author of Sweets, A History of Candy, in a radio interview where he described his joy in sharing sweets with his baby boy. He rails in the book against what he calls food morality and the notion that there are good and bad foods. And consistent with our observation that Law makes sin increase, he argues. It is the attempt to deny certain foods, rather than the cravings themselves, which leads to weight gain. Richardson also quotes Deborah Waterhouse, author of Why Women Need Chocolate. Food cravings are Mother Nature's way of informing us that we need to eat a specific food in order to look and feel great. Here are a few key excerpts from Richardson's book. Does every food choice have to be a moral choice? This policy of attacking sugar and sweets does not fundamentally improve people's diets. All it does is spoil an innocent moment of pleasure, a balm amid the stress of life. Sweets can also be good for you. They contain glucose energy, they taste nice, they are easily digested, they cheer you up and they can play an important part in both our social and private lives. The benefits of sweets are more psychological than physical. 
But these positive aspects are never mentioned by the medical establishment and used to balance the so-called ill effects. Our bodies are treated more like automobiles than temples. The result of all this nutritional perversity is that children grow up with ideas about good foods and bad foods, associating them with punishment or reward. This can store up problems for the future. Mentally labeling foods is central to the warped logic of people with eating disorders. Most parents will want to ration their children sweets, but it would be better for their psychological health if sweets were given joyfully as an expression of love, rather than grudgingly and disapprovingly. Sometimes it seems that parents derive a perverse satisfaction from banning or demonizing certain foods. Because they feel they are taking some positive action in protecting their children, regardless of whether it is doing more harm than good, so give children a break, and give them back their sweets. The authorities would do better to leave sugar alone, and address poverty as the root cause of poor diet in many people, rather than hectoring people with scare stories. And to encourage the teaching of cookery and understanding of fresh ingredients in schools, the only way to encourage healthier eating is to make sure it is more enjoyable eating, to give people the will and the skills to make their own good food, and to make the ingredients necessary for this kind of food affordable. So. All that remains in this section is to call down blessings on your taste buds. The Lord bless them and keep them. The Lord make His face to shine upon them and give them everlasting life. Food is His gift to us, given for our enjoyment. So leave room in your life for the food you love. You know, all this talk of eating is making me hungry. I think I'll go and enjoy a bar of chocolate right now. Taking a break from writing to give my tongue a tasty treat. Won't you join me, dear reader? Curl up with a good book. This one will do, and savor every precious mouthful. You've been listening to my audiobook recording of the Gourmet Gospel. You can find the links to get your copy by going to my website, poetprofits.com, where profit spelt P-R-O-P-H-E-T. Until next week, this has been Abdiel Leroy. Music